Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning, Lord Jesus. As Pastor Pete brings your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you speak into our hearts. Speak to us, Lord. Thank you for bringing us together this morning to glorify you and to worship you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. This morning we're reading from Romans 2, 17 to 29, the Jews and the law. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that the law, you, see, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rub temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements... Will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A Jew is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Thank you, Helen. Now, this is a sort of rhetorical question. You don't have to answer this. But are you enjoying this series on Romans? walking through this book. Uh, I really am, so I hope you are, and I hope in your head you said yes. Um, this morning I thought I'd start in a, in a place uh, with a bit of background that we haven't covered yet on the book of Romans, and it looks at the question of, well, who is Paul writing to? We're in the book of Romans, so I guess the obvious answer is he's writing to the Romans, yes, but is he writing to Jews? Is he writing to Gentiles? Is he, is he writing to people who are gathering at a synagogue or are they gathering in a house? What, what does it look like, these people that he is writing to? Now, we, we may not have all the answers, but I want to share with you a couple of, of snippets, one out of the Bible and one out of history, that give us a little bit of flavour about who Paul's writing to as he writes this, uh, this book, this letter. And the first snippet is out of the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 10 to 11, uh, we're in a place where the disciples are speaking in all sorts of languages. It's the time of Pentecost. And they're speaking to people from lots of nations who can understand them. 
And there's this really interesting phrase there. After listing a whole bunch of other nations, it also lists people who were there as being visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. None of the other countries or places, it sort of lists this differentiation, but for Rome, it says Jews and converts to Judaism. In other words, Gentiles who've decided that the way that the Jews live and the God that they serve, that, that might be the right way to go. Fascinating. And so I can't help but wonder if those Jews and converts to Judaism, those Jews and Gentiles who were from Rome, were some of those who accepted the message and were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So could it be that that part of Acts is telling us that these were the people that took the message of Jesus back to Rome and started churches, started house groups, started a group of people who said, we think we've found the Messiah. Second snippet for you uh, is this interesting historical fact uh, that one of the emperors in the middle of the first century expelled the Jewish people from Rome. He said, no, you're out. And I won't go into the detail of, of why that was, but, but a number of scholars would say, well, because those Jewish people got pushed out, in these fledgling little groups of people who were following Jesus, the people who sort of became the, the organisers and the runners of the show were the Gentile believers. And so there became this sort of power imbalance. Now, the Jews came back into Rome later on, and, and so maybe things shifted... And perhaps Paul, in writing to the Romans, understood this balance, that there were Jews and Gentiles that he was writing to, and that there were these interesting power dynamics going on. So that helps inform us a little bit about some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the dynamics of what was happening in the people to whom Paul was writing. And the final thing I wanted to share with you, of course, is that Rome at that stage was the centre of the world. So, Paul would have known that the people he was writing to, some of them would have had very high levels of education. They would have been very good at debating and arguing. They would have understood all sorts of techniques of, of making arguments. And so, we see in Paul's letter that he addresses and recognises all of those elements. So, what's the structure of this letter that we're looking at? We, we spent a number of weeks now going through different parts. We started right at the beginning. And I thought it would be helpful to do a little bit of background on who Paul's writing to, but then also to understand, just to give us a sort of a high-level picture of what are we walking through here. And so I've got a slide that I hope will, will sort of show us the first few chapters of Romans. Now, the first bit, the first half of chapter one, Paul says, hi. That's kind of the style. He just says hello, really. Uh, and then he says what he's writing about. And that was our first installment of this series when when Dave Scaife preached to us and Paul says I'm writing about the gospel the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and the fact that this gospel this good news is the righteousness of God being revealed so in the middle of chapter one Paul says this is really what I'm what I'm writing to you about and then he goes on to give in the next few chapters some background he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to you about the righteousness of God being revealed. I'm going to tell you about the good news. Before I do, though, let's talk about where we're at. Before the good news came along, let's talk about the state of play. And so, Paul basically says, the pagans, the Gentiles, they've missed the mark of what God wanted. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. The second half of chapter 1 is saying, 
that group of people missed the mark. And then he goes on to clarify and he says, look, even the pagans who think they're doing the right thing, they say, look, we're not into all these bad things. They've also missed the mark. And then Paul, realising that his Jewish listeners and readers would have been thinking, ah, you know, so we are the good guys, says, ah, no, actually, the Jewish people have also missed the mark. And he spends, really, all of chapter 2 doing that. And then, in the first half of chapter 3, Paul says, but you're going to object to this, I'm going to answer some of your questions up front, I understand that you're clever people, you're in the centre of the universe, you know how to argue, so I'm going to address some of your clever Jewish questions up front, that's in the first half of chapter 3, and then in the back half of chapter 3 and moving forward, Paul starts to unveil this good news. So that's a little bit of the run of the start of Romans and I thought it'd be helpful if we just had that overview as today we step into the back end of chapter 2. So that's where Paul's going. And as we do that today, Paul is speaking to the Jewish nation. So he's just in this letter, he's sort of slammed the pagans and the Gentiles in many ways. He said they're not getting it right. But hold on, people who believe you are chosen, the Jewish people. And he speaks to them as as if one person. So he uses this language as sort of speaking as if to one, but really it's a representative person. So uh, he's talking to them as, as a nation. And he's saying, I understand that we think we are special. Now, when, when I say we, of course, Paul was also a Jew. So he says, oh, look, I understand that as Jews, we think we are chosen, we think we're special. Now, why did they think that? Now, this is really important as well. Again, a little bit of background to understand what Paul's saying. The reason that they thought that is because of these amazing promises God had made. And I'm going to share with you, in the Old Testament, there were three particular covenants, great covenant promises that God had made to the Jewish people. Now, the first one in Genesis 12 was to Abraham. And he said, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to bless all people through you. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. Later on in Exodus, God expands this and he's talking to Moses, who is Abraham's descendant. And he's talking to him as he's brought the Israelite, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt. And God says this to Moses, this is out of Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Wow, I'd feel pretty special. Treasured possession, my holy nation, this is my covenant with you as a people. And then the next one was to King David. King David also descended through Abraham. And God in 2 Samuel makes these promises about David's house and his royal line continuing forever. So the Jewish people had all of these promises. They had all of the messages in the Old Testament that said, this is who you are. God has made these covenant promises to us. 
And we've seen throughout the Old Testament, through life, that God is faithful to those things. They believed, they knew they were a special and chosen people. And they also understood how that was distinguished. So how do I know I'm part of the chosen people? Well, first of all, we have the law. We have the law. And that helps us know the guidelines that God has given us and we keep those and that is, the way, that is part of us being a chosen people. We are the holders of, we have the knowledge of the law. And there was also this very special, particular physical process for Jewish males called circumcision. Now at this point in my sermon preparation, I was, I was trying to look for something to make, you know, make the conversation a little lighter. Um, ran a few things past Helen, she said, no, not, not, not good. Um, so, uh, look, uh, trying to sort of make this painful and sensitive topic just a little bit lighter, I couldn't actually find anything, so I, I had to give all my ideas uh, the chop. Thank you, somebody got that. I was wondering how I'd react to your reaction, but there we go. All right, let's go. Uh, so here's how explicit God was in his instructions, though, in Genesis chapter 17 about circumcision. He says this, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. It's the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and, here's a critical bit, it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised including those born in your household or brought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. And now how about this statement? My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Everlasting covenant signified by this physical circumcision. So armed with all of that understanding... Let's look at this passage that Paul now writes to these people who know they are chosen and who are circumcised. The four, first four verses of our passage are actually affirming that idea of specialness. They're actually affirming, Paul saying, yes, this is right. Indeed, we are the chosen people. Uh, there's a word in there, I, I think as Helen read it in the first verse, verse 17, that said, boast in God. Now, as, as I've read a bit of commentary on that, actually that's not a negative thing. Often we think of boasting as being a negative. But in this case, it's more like celebrate. It's the idea that absolutely rightly we celebrate the fact that we know God. It's not a negative. And, and Paul goes on to say that this is a people who know God's will. Yes, God's law has been revealed. Absolutely, that is good. We can approve what is excellent. We can guide the blind, be a light to those in the darkness. Yes, yes, yes. These are all the things that the chosen people should do. But, now we move into the next four verses. And Paul essentially says, but, we haven't done them. We, we've failed there's hypocrisy amongst us. We, we speak a good game, but we fail in action. And he's not really saying that every single one of you, have, every single Jew has done all of these things wrong. But as a group, as a community, we haven't done what a chosen people was chosen to do. And, and the kicker is right at the end of this little four verses, verse 24 
where he says, Paul says to them, as a result of our actions, those around us think God is rubbish. Because of you, God's name is blasphemed. What a stark contrast for what a chosen people's been called to be and to do. Paul's saying the chosen status goes hand in hand with the activity of doing what you're chosen to do. And so having, having said, yes, these are good things, this is what a chosen people is to do, but we haven't done it, then Paul introduces some controversy. And this is, seems to be very much Paul's style. Then, now he does something that's just, all those people in the congregation are sort of folding their arms and crossing their legs and the body language is saying, what is this guy talking about? Let's read it. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you've become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Paul says, what if this sign that we've understood absolutely was different? What if we're supposed to understand this not as a purely physical thing, but, but actually something about the inside? Circumcision of the heart. Now, the idea wasn't completely new to Paul, actually. There was a prophet called Jeremiah who, hundreds of years earlier, had written about this. And we've got this in our Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in Jeremiah 4.4. And, and Jeremiah says this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah, in inhabitants of Jerusalem. What Paul says is, could those who, who keep the law but aren't circumcised, they don't have this physical symbol of the everlasting covenant, could they be part of this special chosen people? Now, those of you who are, have taken up the challenge of reading through Romans a couple of times over these few months, so we've said, we've got about 10 weeks, I think, that we're doing Romans and if you even just once every two days read a chapter of Romans, you get through it twice. If you've been doing that, and I know many of you have, which is, which is great, you will probably already have been through chapters 9, 10 and 11. And in chapters 9, 10 and 11, Paul unpacks this idea a whole lot more. Right here, he's just sowing a bit of a seed. He's just sort of starting to get people a little bit, hang on, what's he talking about? So later on, he can unpack it a little bit more. And in, that, in, in those chapters, he actually talks about the Gentile believers in Christ being grafted in to this chosen people. But right here in chapter 2, Paul, setting up this idea, is basically saying that God's taken action to remain faithful to the covenants that he's made, but to expand it and enable his purposes to be carried out carried out. This, this revelation of the righteousness of God is a revelation that God's chosen people through Jesus now includes Jews and 
non-Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised. So, so I hope you've followed that. I hope that's been a little bit interesting, but, but the real question is this. What do we do with that today? What does it mean for us today? What can we take out of this passage? And I want to suggest three key things that we can take out of this passage today. The first one's this, that God has a chosen people. Yes. But that chosen people is now open to all in and through Christ. In Paul's opening of his letter to Ephesians, he says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him. We, we, we are all Gentiles, as far as this goes. Now, I, I may not know of your Jewish heritage, so please forgive me, uh, but I'm certainly not of Jewish heritage. Many of you, I would suggest, are Gentiles. This applies to us. He has chosen us in Christ, not through the line physically of Abraham. The invitation to be part of God's people is open to all in Christ. The second thing is that those people who are in Christ, who are in this chosen people, are inwardly changed. The sign of and the ask from God for His chosen people is a circumcised heart. Okay, what does that mean? I got to this point and I thought, oh, I better explain that. Before I explain it, I better understand it. <laughs> what, what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? It's not a procedure. I'm looking at a couple of doctors and surgeons down here. It's not a procedure. No. The interesting thing I think about circumcision, and, and I think we read it in one of the passages already, is that it was typically done to an eight-day-old boy. Now, that's not his choice. And, and so... The idea of being circumcised for the majority wasn't that they chose to be, it was actually an identity statement. In the ancient world, many people would have understood circumcision to be representative of somebody from the Jewish nation. It was an identity thing. So the idea of having a circumcised heart is actually an identity of being in Christ. Third thing. There is a role for his people. There is a role for God's chosen people. Jesus said, you, you are the light of the world. Chosen people are not just chosen and given a ticket to the good place. Chosen for a reason, chosen for a purpose, chosen to be the light of the world. And so having offered some of those thoughts, that's my looking at this passage and trying to understand it for us today. I actually want to ask you to do some thinking this morning. Now, we are in the habit of, of writing down some questions and giving those after the sermon. This, this morning, I'm going to go through uh, my questions, one, two, three, four, five of them. And I'd love, if you've got your phone out, if you're a note taker, to, to write these down. But I'd love even more that as this service finishes, as you're having a cup of tea, before you even leave your seats, that these are questions you talk to each other, talk to me, talk to somebody about. Because I think as a, as a community that wants to be a flourishing community of God, we should be wrestling with some of these things. So let me hit you with some of these questions and see what you think. I encourage you to talk about them. The first question is this, are we a light 
to our community. Light stands out. In the midst of darkness, light brings hope. It makes a difference. Now, as a parent, you might know, asking binary questions, yes, no answers, that's not always a, the, you know, the, the best way to get a good conversation. So, are we a light in our, to our community? Answer yes, no, but why? If you think yes, if, if your immediate reaction in your mind was yes, can you articulate a story? Can you share it with somebody to say, here's how I think we're a light in our community? Or if your conclusion's no, well, what would it look like to be a light in this community? Number two, how is the name of God treated in our community because of us? You might have heard of a guy called Mahatma Gandhi, uh, famous guy in the 20th century. He said this, you might have even heard the quote, it's quite a well-known one. He said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians because they're not like Christ. What's the perception of the name of Jesus in your neighborhood, in your family, amongst your colleagues, around